you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome. You're listening to a rather special I Might Be Wrong episode. It's 100th, Henry. Can you believe it? 100 episodes. That's actually, uh, that is quite surprising. I didn't think we'd hit the 100, put it that way. I thought we could hit the 100. I think what surprises me more is that we've still got so much ground that we want to cover. Yeah, back in that pub in Bristol, down by the docks, when we were going through lists, we spat out a good 50 bands between us, maybe more. And yeah, we've hit 100 and there's way more to come, I think. At least we could talk about that. But yeah, well done. I think, actually, I'm going to cut in because one thing I should call out is it's a 100th episode. And for those listening, it does sound like a double act, but it's actually not really a double act because if you look at the work that Rich does. So those of you who are listening, you might not know that Rich does all the editing. He does all of the social media, so Facebook, Instagram, all of that stuff. That's Rich. So a little round of applause. Um, well done. For, oh, from, thanks, from, from me For all the hard work, because uh, I just sit here, talk for a little bit and then and then put my feet up. So, um, so well done for doing all of that. So you say that, uh, and the editing is a chunk of work, but you do all the research for all of yours and it's always a pleasure. Like I wouldn't do all of the effort that we put into this if I didn't enjoy recording. So yeah, thanks for being along for the ride and agreeing to do it in the first place because, you know, it took a little bit of nudging to start with, but now we're into it. It's it's awesome. Yeah. And thanks to the guests and also those guests who have not appeared yet, who are interested because uh, we do have a bit of a, a backlog of people who have said they're interested. So they will, I'm sure they'll appear, especially after an album that like, we're going to talk about, we should hopefully <laughs> engage them a bit more and think, yeah, let's go right into some of the, the real classics. Yeah, I think we wanted to get over this hump with the 100th episode and then start thinking about guests again. We've sort of had our eyes on this one and we've had our eyes on what album we should cover and we sort of batted a few ideas around, but we kept coming back to one in particular. Uh, well, it was your decision. I think you've made the right decision. What did you pick? I have selected Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. Wow. Which, on face value, is a bit weird, because if you had to pigeonhole our podcast, we're a what? Indie, <laughs> electronic podcast, I'd guess? So, 80s rock? What the hell? Well, you say that, but there's a lot of influence on a lot of the bands that we listen to from this 80s era of rock, and Guns N' Roses as a band are really... They're a seminal moment in that period that almost feels like they're a trigger for American rock becoming less mainstream, less commercialised in the same way that punk in the 70s did that for British rock. Yeah. And these guys, really, the thing about them is they're the real deal. They're not a put-together collection of musicians who are capable. These guys party just as hard as the music suggests they are as dangerous as the music suggests they are they're basically just a complete bunch of absolute rebels in the truest sense of the word and this is where i think for for us we were in our teens maybe before that when when these guys were floating around and we got got wind of them and they were kind of past it in the in the late 90s so it's quite cool to go back and go into a little time machine and look at the actual reception at the time and see actually these guys were 
they were hardcore, right? They're not uh, absolutely. They're not messing around. So anyway, how about you introduce the band and let's go into the the background. So Guns N' Roses, according to Wikipedia, are an American hard rock band from Los Angeles, California. I'd argue that hard rock is not quite the right description. They are parts hard rock, parts heavy metal, parts hair metal. There's almost some glam metal elements to what they do. So yeah, they're they're sort of a range, but definitely they come into that heavy metal 80s grouping of bands they're just not quite as hard as some like metallica for example yeah that's fair and they've got a very snarling fuck you attitude that just is at the core of all of their best music agree (laughs) yeah (laughs) if you look at the other bands that were around just before them i mean aerosmith acdc van halen maybe floating around in the background these were big big kind of metal groups but they were commercial and they didn't want to a lot of it was pandering to a record label to sell stuff it's the 80s you want to make money so yep. a lot of these bands were driven by the dollar the greed is good decade yeah. so these guys formed in 1985 and they signed to geffen records in 1986 so we would have been what four or five years old at this yeah. point in time at that point, the band comprised of vocalist Axel Rose, lead guitarist Slash, rhythm guitarist Izzy Stradlin, bassist Duff McKagan, and drummer Steve Adler. All of those are adopted names that were taken on during their time in the early to mid-80s as they were making their way in the LA rock scene. Oh, so even the... Um, I just thought it was Slash and Axel that had adopted names, so the rest of them are also fake names. Yeah, basically. Okay. Uh, So Slash and Adler met at Bancroft Junior High after Adler's mother had moved him and his brother to LA from Cleveland. Slash had grown up in a showbiz adjacent household, so his parents had moved the whole family to LA from London to pursue careers in the music industry when he was young. And he actually grew up with regular visitors to the house being people like Bowie and Ronnie Wood and all that kind. So he he was already adjacent to some very famous people but despite that Adler's actually the one who introduced him to the electric guitar so he'd got one from his parents and invited Slash over to show off that guitar and Slash tells a story of how Aerosmith's rocks inspired him to learn the guitar because he was basically a punk at a school full of yuppies and he was really into this girl he said she was the hottest girl in school and he managed to get himself invited over to her house they smoke pot listen to music most of the records he'd already heard except for rocks and apparently that grabbed him so heavily that this girl that he absolutely fancied the pants off he didn't even realize she was there at a certain point he was so focused on the music that's awesome so there's a great article on guitar world where there's a quote from him saying Rock sounded like the Rolling Stones, who had been my favourite band from age 3 to 13. It had blues-based rock and roll, but turned up to 15. Aerosmith delivered the stories with such urgency, and music had an almost punk attitude with its powerhouse rhythm section and guitars that were all over the place. Rocks was loose and frenzied, and I could relate to the emotional, angst-filled vocals of Last Child in combination. It wasn't pristine and perfect, but it gelled together perfectly. It's an amazing record. Rocks was aggressive, loud and swaggering. It fit my personality perfectly. After I digested the album six or seven times at this chick's apartment, I just got up, grabbed my smokes, jumped on my bike and went home. I never did get laid, but not long after I picked up my guitar and I've been doing this ever since. (laughs) Brilliant. Wow, there we go. And that's how it all started. Right. And so... 
Adler and Slash sort of did a lot of the high school band thing, garage band, but it was more about getting together, smoking weed, listening to records, talking about music and trying to jam together a bit. Adler dropped out in 10th grade and Slash as a junior. He was already gaining a good reputation and joined a band called Titus Sloan. Right. So that's those two. Rose and Stradlin met at Jefferson High School in Lafayette, Indiana. Rose was raised in a strict Pentecostal household and he sang and played piano in church, but he was already rebelling against that strict life when he found out that his real dad was a guy called William Rose and started referring to himself as W. Axel Rose after that and a band called Axel that he was involved in. And basically at that point he dropped out of school, became the local town rebel, would get into fights and be drinking and Mm. regularly picked up by the police. You know, the classic kind of teenage rebellion. Yeah kind of story straddling carried on and finished high school in 1980 but he then moved to la to try and get into the music world rose was already making frequent trips out there to see his buddy and then moved out permanently dropping into a scene where glam metal was on the rise and obviously you know you get that attitude from these guys they sort of fit into that but they're a bit too punk and a bit too outrageous and fighty and just just loose cannons basically yeah, well, if you set the scene at the time, there's a bunch of hair metal bands at the moment, like on the on the Sunset Strip, you've got Motley Crue, and they've been there for a few years, right? They're in the mid-80s, and Kiss as well. Yep. And they're all floating around the scene, and it's kind of got commercial and stayed. And so I can you can see the influence uh, of those bands on Guns N' Roses. You can see, well, a lot of the way they dress is the same, and so you can kind of see they're, they're born out of that. But I think what they produced was very different it kind of kind of shocked the uh, the establishment didn't it right well the movement of these guys to la didn't immediately lead to the formation of guns and roses so it's a bit of a convoluted story that involves them sort of all orbiting each other in this scene for a while Stradlin and Rose were joined by Chris Webber, who was an LA-based guitarist to create a band that was called AXL, then Rose, then Hollywood Rose. So, you know, it's good to see that Axel's already going all in on his ego early on. And Axel Rose was already getting fame for intense performances as frontman. So Webber, in an interview years later, said Axel was so full of pent-up energy that he would shake, literally tremble when he got up there. He'd be letting this energy out and I could see him just vibrating. It would actually be kind of scary seeing someone evoking all of this power and energy and emotion. Wow. Because you look at him in an interview and he's the most uber relaxed, almost got this kind of stony face facade. You can't read him when he talks to a lot of interviewers. So to flick from that to uh, to having that energy it's yeah it's quite something it is i mean you can understand when someone's got that level of intensity and charisma why people would want to be involved with that yeah. particularly was these guys were using this as an excuse to party really hard and have this rock and roll lifestyle even though they hadn't really properly made it yet But Slash and Adler were starting to become aware of the trio and they joined Hollywood Rose briefly, but then the band split. And so Rose joined Tracy Gunn's band called LA Guns and the others joined an outfit called Road Crew. So that's four of the five in that original lineup have sort of orbited each other and then exploded out and (laughs) gone off and joined other things. You've only got to look at the history of Guns N' Roses to realise that this is a volatile mix of personalities. Yeah, sure. (laughs) 
So the final member of the original Guns N' Roses lineup, the kind of classic lineup that it's referred to, came from Seattle. So Duff McKagan grew up on Beatles and Stones, but then graduated into a Seattle punk scene that was much more his speed. He moved to the LA scene, met Slash and Adler, who asked him to join Road Crew. He declined that, but was impressed by Slash and his abilities and personality on stage. In 85, Rose and Guns were trying to form a group from the remnants of LA Guns, and so they invited him to join them. And McKagan apparently wasn't convinced that everyone was entirely committed, so he lined up a West Coast tour, and Guns and Gardner backed out and replaced by members of Road Crew, Slash and Adler. So that's where you finally get this Guns and Roses band name and lineup. Ha <laughs> ha, that makes the name. That's the right. story. And so the following tour, that that tour happened, but it's nicknamed the Hell Tour. Their car broke down outside LA and they had to hitchhike the whole, I think, 1,100 miles up to Seattle and back. (laughs) Awesome. But rather than this causing loads of tension, it actually seems to have been the thing that initially bonded them together and made them become a group and and to start getting that reputation of incredible explosive live shows partying hard incredibly talented you know a band that people wanted to see but also being a liability you know they would turn up absolutely shit-faced they wouldn't turn up sometimes you know you just never quite knew what you were going to get from them yeah and this is where i guess the 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 record execs start having a bit of a panic because you've got a band who've clearly got talent they're signed to geffen so that's a great start right they're they're a big old label well apparently geffen were the only ones who wanted them because no one else would touch them because they were a liability basically you know they're consuming copious amounts of booze and drugs and getting into fights with themselves and other people do you really want to have to deal with that yeah exactly and if you're the a&r man you're going to be the one that deals with it exactly so it's it's a pretty potent mix and i think definitely in the in the early days we'll come on to it in a second but definitely no one wanted to talk with them it was their own little roadshow to start with and one of the advantages that they had as a band once they were signed was that having cycled in and out of all of these other bands they already had quite a lot of existing songs ideas bones of things that would then become appetite for destruction and actually some of those things would end up on other records as well so one of the stories i was fascinated by was november rain was already written prior to appetite for destruction's recording but Sweet Child of Mine was already in on the record and they didn't want a second ballad. That's that's kind of cool. And also, let's remember, this is a debut album. This is the first thing that this band put out. And your point about them cherry-picking and collating a lot of this sound, it kind of explains why it's such a barnstorming album and it got such, an, such a huge reception. It's kind of been forged out of the fires of a few other bands. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting hearing how the album got recorded as well. So they started recording in January 87 and they recorded through to April. So this is, what, four months of studio work to do this. But apparently the main tracks were recorded in two weeks. The problem was that there were so many issues with inebriated band members that it took forever to get everything finally sorted. So... You know, Axel Rose was getting arrested, drunken disorderly stuff going on, people not turning up, or when they turned up, they'd be strung out on heroin. <laughs> the thing is that Axel Rose has a reputation for being 
you know, a party animal, he's probably the most sober and sensible of the lot of that band. <laughs> so there's another quote that I got from, I think this was from a Loudwire article. The band's former European publicist, Arlette Vrika, says slash once told me you know you do heroin once and it's such a high that you want to do it again the problem is that the minute you do it a second time you're addicted to it axel wasn't really doing drugs because of the medication he was on he was not a big drinker either people have a misconception about that but he was the clean and mostly sober one really he wanted to preserve his voice and he was serious about it wow that's a side of them that i didn't realize actually so but when you say the most sober of the lot i mean it's a very low bar that you're (laughs) setting here (laughs) so these guys settled on mike clink as their producer and they're in the studio the the songs are mostly written really so they'd have these brief and frantic writing sessions where they'd basically just build on the idea that one of them had brought to the party there's a quote from mark Cantor, who is a former guns and roses friend and photographer who says Back then, any one of them could come up with a riff and the rest would build on it. They were totally on the same page as far as what they wanted to do with music and they needed each other to come up with the best songs, Yeah, which is amazing. And you can hear that in the record. The ability of all of this to just weave together in this perfect, perfect set of, of songs, really, is you need a band that's entirely on the same page, particularly when it's not just one person that's writing everything and telling the rest of the band what to do. This is a collaborative effort. I mean, it's just so impressive the way that that's done. Yeah, and it sounds taut, right? It doesn't sound like it's produced because you need to produce it because the band don't really play well together. This is You can tell straight away that this is a band that, that just know each other. Yeah, your producer here is more the guy who's trying to make sure that... <laughs> shit actually happens <laughs> no, one, no one dies <laughs> as much as anything there is a hilarious story from recording appetite for destruction so when rose recorded the audio for rocket queen he wanted sex noises and he wanted them to be authentic right so their a and r man zaltot says steven's girlfriend at the time showed up at the studio and basically axel said to her hey do you want to fuck i want to record it and put it on the record and she was like sure she was probably strung out on dope but there was no consideration for the fact that she was in new york staying with her boyfriend who was steve adler so we mic'd <laughs> up this sexual session between axel and his drummer's girlfriend we recorded it and the results of it ended up on rocket queen jeez yeah (laughs) this is the kind of shit that they'd get up to like this is not an unusual story when you go and dig into i mean there's far too many stories for us to tell on a podcast that's supposed to be under an hour but it's just incredible these guys really were just fuck it live life yeah and even if you take away the antics some of the stories um like slash's guitar and amp the story about the sound that he gets on appetite I, i don't know if you've heard about that but he was um he, he was lent it so that he used a gibson and they they gave him a i think it was an amp that was lent by a local record store and some guy had clearly dicked around with it and the sound that came out of it was just this clean sound when you hear slash's solo it's so distinct on the album he loved it and the whole band loved it they gave the amp back and then i think they realized how good it was and he's been hunting around america thousands of guitar fans have been trying to find out who was this anonymous amp guy (laughs) that had messed around with an amp to create the sound that he used to produce the record and no one's found it but if you start googling that there's a whole treasure trove of 
of treasure hunts for this thing to try and find out what, what happened to it. Oh, incredible. And I mean, his guitar work on this album, we've talked about the style of music, but just the level of talent that these guys have when you listen to the quality of the record and the music itself is is incredible. Well, that's a great word because it, it's quality. And there's a, I read an interview with Slash who was saying that heavy metal was all about playing faster and faster and faster. And he said he loved the blues and he wanted to introduce this kind of blues sound. And he he could have played faster. He could have been one of those, you know, because that's exactly what Metallica did. Mm-hmm. Metallica were the fastest band. And Slash was like, no, no, I'm just going to give you pure quality. And then he nailed it. Right. But this record is revered by almost anyone who likes any kind of guitar rock. And yet it wasn't an immediate hit, was it? No. Well, so, some of the... <laughs> It, sometimes people say, oh, it, it was a flop to start with and it took ages to, to get going. It was never a flop. It was doing well off the back of their tour. So they got to 200,000 sales after about six months with no MTV, no radio. They were selling a lot of records, but they were selling off the back of gigs. So they would, they would play a gig. People would go out and talk to their friends and you'd sell records that way. They had a problem with the record, which was that the artwork on the record was i guess controversial and i'm putting yep. that incredibly mildly so the <laughs> the cross that you see on the current record with their with the kind of skeleton faces that's not the original artwork the original was was a cartoon i guess a drawing by robert williams and yeah it's 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 interesting right <laughs> it's still in the inside as i think it got tucked into the inside of the sleeve instead yeah exactly if you see inside that's what's there it's a woman who's been i guess raped by a robot she's been selling robots and there's another robot coming to her rescue it's um pretty intense and when guns and roses saw this they were like we, we want this we want this to be our album cover robert williams said you're mad what are you doing putting this on an album no one will like it and so they did it anyway and in an interview with him the artist he said he said the shit hit the fan it was enormous sensation and there were a lot of lot of problems with it and i'm just sitting here saying well i told you so <laughs> williams knew this was going to happen he was like you guys are crazy and they did it anyway right and that meant that a lot of big retailers commercial retailers and also indie retailers were offended by the imagery and refuse to stock it because you've got to remember this is 1980s america where there's a lot of white bread picket fence town states whatever that just aren't ready for this kind of thing yeah and an mtv put out a statement pretty much at the same time that the album came out saying we are not playing guns and roses it was a complete (laughs) blank which in the mtv mtv in the mid 80s this was when mtv was becoming such a way to sell records in the way that the internet does now and Spotify does now. This was kind of right in the middle of when you flicked on your radio, you just have classic rock playing. It's really boring. You'd go to MTV and that would be where you'd find the new artists. So if you couldn't get onto MTV, you're not really going to get found. Well, like you say, you can't do the viral marketing thing that people will now do online to try and get artists big. But as well, you don't have internet sales channels. So even if you wanted to buy this record, if you lived in the middle of Arizona somewhere and no record store will stock it within 200 miles, you can't buy it. You might be able to find a postal catalogue service to do it. But again, that's maybe tricky and you're not going to get the average casual fan going out and buying a record off that basis. 
Yeah, and Guns N' Roses couldn't tour their way out of this as well because no one wanted to tour with them. Um, apparently, Paul Stanley <laughs> of Kiss, he approached them and said, look, we can't tour with you with the way that you present yourselves. But if you're more theatrical and if you can do something a bit more like what we do and, you know, join the hair metal club, then maybe we can make it work. And Axl Rose gave a typical Axl Rose response and said, fuck right off. Well, yeah. We're not touring with you. We're doing it our way. Right. And... This changed, right? So eventually the label forced them to compromise and the artwork that you now see on any given record cover for Appetite for Destruction is the Celtic cross design that was designed by Billy White Jr. And I love it, actually. I think it's great. You've got each of the skulls, five skulls on the cross, and each of them is a band member. So you've got like Slash's big hair and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the knot work in the cross, that's a reference to Thin Lizzy, which apparently is a, another of Axl Rose's favourites and a, a favourite of Billy White Jr. as well. Because it was inspired by um, a tattoo he had in his arm, wasn't it? Yep. So on his forearm, he, it was there. And I think someone said, that looks nice. And that spawned the whole idea of, well, let's put that on the album cover rather than yep. the, the, the Williams image. Yeah, and I'm sort of glad they did change it because it's such an iconic cover and I absolutely love it. It's one of those, again, covers that you can catch a glimpse of it across the room and you yeah. immediately know what you're looking at exactly yeah i agree with you i, I think it's a it, it's a classic so they they did good yeah so we've got an album cover now that's good mm-hmm. right this is this this is safe so now what guns and roses really needed was a spark yeah you've got a good strong set of album sales you've now got an album cover that's clean but you've got your problem which is that mtv said we're not playing your records so Tom Zutort, who's the A&R man who you mentioned earlier, yep. he went to Geffen, who was the owned the record label, and said, can you can you help us? Can you play just one song, Welcome to the Jungle, just once, and it'll make you millions? Geffen got pissed off because he didn't know that MTV had said, we're not going to play this. And Geffen had actually said to the band and their manager that they should stop touring and record a second album. They weren't thinking we should put any more weight behind this first album at all. Yeah, exactly. So this was, first it was a risk by Sutor because he's taking Geffen for a little bit of a ride to turn to play it. So anyway, Geffen asks them to do it. And so MTV execs decide that in the network's after hours rotation, when there's no presenters or anything, we'll just stick it on once. There's a great quote from Zutot on the how he actually got them to agree to this. I don't know if you've read any of that. No, 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 go for it. So he said MTV was afraid that if they played Guns N' Roses, they'd get thrown off the local cable TV channels, which I guess is that's their reasoning, is they're worried that conservative American local TV states who could basically control, you didn't have these massive national networks, it was all little local stations, and if they got taken off there, they'd lose tons of advertising revenue because all of a sudden their distribution drops massively. So he says, it was absurd because I knew this band would get such a huge boost if we could only get the video played. So I asked David Geffen if he would help me out and get them to play Welcome to the Jungle. There was an incredibly gorgeous girl who worked with us and she promised that she would dance naked on MTV president and CEO Tom Freston's desk if they would play Jungle. Niven says, we went to them with a full court press. At the same time, I sent a blistering letter to the head of programming about what they were playing and what they weren't because I thought, fuck, they haven't even looked at this video for six months. Are they ever going to view it? And bless his heart, the man took it in a very amused spirit and that turned his head around. So... I don't know that the girl ever did end up dancing naked <laughs> on their thing, but they clearly put a lot of pressure onto MTV with 
both carrot and stick to try and get this yeah. thing done. And even then, so MTV said, all right, we'll do this, but we'll do this once. This was literally once. So they said, we'll play this. So we'll play at 1 a.m. Los Angeles time. That's 4 a.m. New York time. So this is heading off into the, in the very early hours of a early Sunday morning. And so you've got the Saturday night crowd partying and they played the video to open the jungle once. And as soon as it finished, people started phoning the MTV switchboard to say, you need to play this again. They kept phoning and it broke the switchboard. Now, I'm, I'm not saying it broke it in a, oh no, there's too many calls. You've got your, there's a call held kind of problem. It actually made the switchboard catch fire. The whole thing <laughs> burned down because of Guns N' Roses. There were so many calls. So, oh, and I've checked that up. I've, I actually tried to find out if it actually caught fire or if that's someone talking bollocks. And no, it did. It, it burned the switchboard down. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And yeah, and so this turned Appetite for Destruction to one of the best-selling records of all time and i think the best american debut of all time so 18 million copies by september 2008 which i think is when the article i read so you know it's probably north of 20 million copies by now and i mean welcome to the jungle what an absolute belter of a track it is in my opinion and i've yet to find after many discussions a replacement for this it's the best side one track one of any debut album ever and i will argue that very very strongly with anyone who wants to take me to task on it oh i i think i call that bomb track by raging against the machine is my favorite but anyway we'll, um, <laughs> both solid choices we'll, 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 we'll cover this later I, I tell you what the thing that i found out a fact to welcome to the jungle today which i hadn't known before i thought it was a police siren at the start of the song you hear a kind of few little guitar notes mm-hmm. and then you hear this kind of this sirony thing it's a voice go and listen to it again and listen to the start of it and try and work out how a voice can do that it's quite impressive i always thought it was just axel rose wailing it is okay yeah <laughs> it's him wailing but i just i just assumed it was so weird that it must have been some kind of electronic noise but it, it's it's a whale yeah, I mean, it just shows you quite how incredible and powerful his voice is in so many different ways. And this, I mean, this sets the stall out for the album, for their career, the guitars with all of that reverb and that classic metal chugging guitar that you get in here with. And what works brilliantly about not just this track, but all of their sounds is you have this sort of metal guitar that's in there that chugging guitar that you recognize any with any metal band it's the way that slash's guitar sings and dances around that and the talent that he shows as he sort of just accentuates the sound with his ability is just incredible yeah and then you go into the guitar forums and they're like no it's not slash it's izzy that's the rhythm guitar that's the real skill in all of this and and i think this is where you can go down a rabbit hole of, of of actually there's just talent everywhere in the band but i think it's both and you do get izzy's guitar coming in later on with uh i can't remember which track i will come on to it i think we should dive into the tracks on this but both of them are talented guitarists it's just that slash is the he's the virtuoso solo artist and yeah. that's something that really is so important to the guns and roses sound yeah we should dive in shouldn't we Let's do it. So have you got anything else to say about Welcome to the Jungle? (laughs) (laughs) All right. I need to jump into the next track then. It's so easy. 
I mean, this just proves that the opener wasn't a fluke. The vocal harmonies in here are great. And Rose basically telling anyone he's unimpressed with to fuck off is just classic Guns N' Roses. Yeah, it sounds a little bit, I don't know, listening it through the ears of someone living in 2020, it sounds a little bit childish, I guess. But back at the time, you'd have to put stickers on your vinyl and your CD to tell people that he was saying this stuff. You can't just tell someone to fuck off back in the 80s. (laughs) Right. Lyrically, this is classic hard rock metal fair. It's all about having a good time and getting laid, basically. Yeah. And let's kind of frame it again. I mean, this is... This album was so kind of vicious almost. All of these songs, they're nothing like their kind of comrades. And they're not doing it for show. I think they're just a they're just a bunch of fairly kind of heart on sleeve party animals. Yeah, this is who they are. There's no this is who we should try and be. And that's I think why it works, is that it is truly just their personalities put into music their experiences the situations that they've been in all of these songs are about themselves the partying lifestyle the drugs they're doing i mean mr brownstone yeah is all about doing heroin basically and the addictive nature of heroin i love the muted guitars and the intro of it the lyrics i used to do a little bit a little wouldn't do so a little got more and more is it's the addict right there yeah i mean what a song mr brownstone the the riff is incredible just having someone talking about heroin and saying how addicted he got that didn't happen in the 80s right you didn't talk about that kind of stuff openly on a on a record the way you were trying to sell to the the mainstream media Right, but America itself had a massive heroin problem at this point in time. They've the opioid issue in the states has been there for half a century, almost a century yep. now. I mean, it's 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 a huge problem. Still going strong today. Right. <laughs> I mean, these lyrics are not obtuse. They are very much on the nose about how this how this stuff is like for them. You know, we've been dancing with Mister Brownstone. He's been knocking. He won't leave me alone. Like that's addiction right there. Yeah, yeah. This isn't kind of some clever metaphor. <laughs> it's it's goes, right. as bad in, in your face as you can get. Right. I do love the opening verse of this. I get up around seven, get out of bed around nine. I don't worry about nothing, no, because Warren's a waste of my time. Which again sums up Guns and Roses, the band, as that's their attitude. That's who they are. Yeah, exactly. I guess we should talk about the next track. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Paradise City. What a classic. So I'm going to um, chip in with my own personal memory of Paradise City, which is that back in, I don't know, I don't know, it was the late 80s or early 90s, we had a a family computer and on that computer was a computer game, a bit like Pong. Trying to remember the name. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. You had a little paddle and you made a ball bounce up against some blocks and it destroyed the blocks. If you completed the game, it played the introduction to Paradise City. I don't know how they got a license for this i bet they didn't i bet they just no. this was a computer geek who's just grabbed it so my introduction to this song was was through this every time when i hear paradise city it triggers this inner kind of jet of success in my head because i've completely associated it with completing a level in this game so i'm hardwired now to get really excited Amazing. when i hear paradise city come on because of this it's like yeah just get a dopamine hit every time <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> brilliant Again, it's classic Guns N' Roses. It's upbeat. It's ready to get down and have a good time. It's very much in the vein of get rich, have fun, or die trying. Yeah, and if you don't know it, you 
then get out <laughs> <laughs> there's no one that doesn't know this i love the gorgeous vocal harmonies in here the riffs are just enormous the texture of the guitars in this album generally you've already touched on it but they're incredible they're big and chunky at times and then soaring and wailing at others I never fail to get blown away by Slash's skill. And I know we normally separate out live to talking about the songs, but I've got to touch quickly on seeing Slash at Glastonbury in 2010. Mm -hmm. He played some of his solo stuff at the time, but he also played a chunk of just absolute classic Guns N' Roses stuff. So I went to see them instead of watching England getting slaughtered by Germany at the World Cup. I don't know if you remember that 4-1 Frank Lampard didn't go in, oh, did go in, go. talk about that. <laughs> I wasn't watching that. I was watching Slash uh, <laughs> with a guy called Miles Kennedy doing a pretty great Axl Rose impression. I hadn't gone back to watch any of this on the BBC's Glastonbury coverage until two days ago when I was like, I should go and see mm. what they played and remind myself. They finished with Paradise City and holy shit, it's incredible. They extend out the end of the song and it's just Slash going to town, just playing incredible stuff. He plays an absolutely brilliant solo section and some of it is with the guitar behind his neck. It's unbelievable it's so vibrant it's so alive it's it's just a master of his craft watching him is just easy for him it wouldn't be easy for anyone except for like 0.01 percent of the guitar playing population and he just it just nails it yeah and when you say it's so alive i've got to chip in with a, a quote from kerrang who reviewed the album back when it was released mm-hmm. and they said uh, rock is at last being wrestled from the hands of the bland the weak the jaded the tired the worn and being thrust back into the hands of the real raunch rebels it's exactly that it's this power and this force in the the band which is great yeah you can see why everyone jumped on the boat it's amazing and it's almost seven minutes long it's a ridiculously long track and there's a moment just around five minutes in where they sort of have this slight almost pause it's not really a pause but everything sort of slows down for a second and almost seems to slightly stall and then they just launch into the outro and it just gets faster and faster and the guitar gets better and better it's absolutely amazing yeah it's it's one of my favorite tracks it probably is my favorite track on the album it's classic yeah i would say it's this welcome to the jungle i think that's as much as I can say in terms of picking out favourites, because it's just such a brilliant <laughs> album. Uh, there are obviously highlights, and those are the tracks that are best known, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the best tracks on here. I want to talk about Think About You, which is really interesting as a track because it sort of uses different instrumentation in here. Mm-hmm. There's acoustic guitar. This one's actually written by Izzy, and he plays the main guitar with Slash playing the acoustic. Right. There's Cowbell. I love the super corny hand claps. It's all brilliant. <laughs> There's, actually, there are cowbells all the way through this album, if you listen carefully. It's like, how did you get away with that on a metal album? Really, that's interesting, because I only really noticed them on this track. Yeah, they, they appear in a couple of other songs. There was one reviewer who bullet-pointed the weird things about this album, and Cowbell gets mentioned quite a bit. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I, I love a bit of Cowbell on anything that's got guitars it's a brilliant offset for that and it's a brilliant focal point for the percussion i guess we have to talk about the next track as well yeah well sweet child of mine which uh slash hated really absolutely hated playing he didn't like it 
He was not a fan. He tried to stop them playing it at one point. Well, not stop them playing it. It's a bit like Creep and Johnny Greenwood. Oh, yeah. You've got a guitarist who doesn't like it. But yeah, Slash is not a fan of Sweet Child of Mine, or wasn't until I think it got massive. I can understand that because the guitar in here is much more low-key. Yeah. There's not as much opportunity in this track for him to show off his talent it's a classic rock ballad what i would say is the bass line in here is fantastic yeah agree that's the thing that really stands out from a musical perspective on this track it's absolutely wonderful and it's that i'm going to go back to the beatles we've talked about the fact that these guys like the beatles they grew up with the beatles bass line equaling melody is a beatles trick that works really well in here yeah good shout good shout this one i think stands out to me in terms of the contrast of Rose's rasping vocals against a rock ballad. It's not something that I think I'd really experienced in music. Generally, if it's pretty music, it's a pretty vocalist. And this is that contrast is really nice. Fair point. Yep. Another classic. Yeah. So I think to avoid us just talking about every single track, we might have to call it there. It's, It's just such a great album. There's very little on here that I would skip. Yeah, it, it's a funny album. It's an album which I wouldn't choose to play it most of the time, but the songs are so huge that the times when you hear this are like at the end of a gig when the lights go up and someone will they'll play you out with a Guns N' Roses track or the end of the night in a nightclub or something like that. They're so big. When you're at a venue, the venue organiser will know it's like, you're in safe hands if you leave a place and you're walking out to Guns N' Roses. You can make it make it sound good. Yeah. So in my head, I I don't play this album a lot because you kind of hear it around. It floats around the world in, in strange little places like that. Right. It's part of the fabric of yeah. music. It's just one of those things. It's like hearing Rolling Stones or Beatles or all of those massive bands. And these guys are a massive, massive band, right? Sweet Child of Mine has over a billion listens by itself <laughs> on Spotify. Jeez. They're just such an important band to music and rock generally and such an influence. Everything from Slash's guitar playing to Axl Rose's vocals had an impact that echoes through the rest of guitar music from this point yeah. forward. And, and we're not really, we're not going to go into the the other albums and the later Guns N' Roses and all of that fun because there's there's a lot there. And I think we'll probably want to do them as separate albums yeah. anyway. And let's leave them on a high, selling their 18 million or whatever units <laughs> that's i think that's what the record companies call it so live i guess you've seen slash is that it no so slash is the best guns and roses performance that i've seen i actually saw them at leeds festivals they played just leeds rather than reading and leeds for one night i think was 2002 or 2003 i forget which but anyway I was there doing bar staffing because that's how I got into festivals when I was a student, basically, was if I could get a ticket by doing some work, I would do. And I remember being with a bunch of friends from basically from my school days, seven or eight of us that were all working the same bar shift. One of the guys went to Leeds Uni and basically through their university union, we could get bar work. And I remember Rob, he's just a massive Guns N' Roses fan. He was like, 
I don't care that our shift is on opposite Guns N' Roses. If they play Welcome to the Jungle, I'm going to leap over the bar and run into the crowd and you will not see me again for the rest of the night. Awesome. Uh, as it turns out, they didn't bother turning up until about 11, 11.30 at night. So we were pretty much wrapping up, closing the bar right. as they came on stage. Axel Rose was a massive dick. He did the whole thing of like, I don't care that we're late. This is someone else's problem. You want us to play, don't you? You want us all to play. And basically got the crowd to make them keep the lights on, even though they knew that they'd probably get massively fined by the council for carrying on with the festival. Because, you know, he's rock and roll. So, of course, yeah. he's going to do that kind of thing. This was not the classic lineup, though. So they had Buckethead on guitar, if you remember him. Yeah. The guy yeah. used to play guitar with a KFC bucket on his head. True. Jeez, I've forgotten about him. Pretty talented. Like, played the, the slash parts very, very competently. The problem was that they played some classic tracks. They played Welcome to the Jungle, and then they got into newer, more modern stuff. There was... Uh, like a 10 minute thing of Axel Rose doing a piano solo-y thing and we ended up leaving yeah we walked away from it because we just got bored and it was really sad to do that yeah know your audience it's a festival crowd play the classics right but this was Axel Rose basically doing whatever he wanted to do yeah he wouldn't be the first rock lead to do something like that at a festival right yeah it was it was okay but Slash's set at Glastonbury was just so much more engaging and you kind of wonder if you were five years old when their first album came out, you're never going to have got to see them at their best, at their peak. Even yeah. if they got back together now and did great shows, they'd still be a shadow of their former selves. Yeah. I remember seeing the Rolling Stones at Isle of Wight Festival and they were great. They were really great, but they weren't that focused, youthful, furious thing that you'd get from a young rock and roll band when they're absolutely at their peak. Yeah, fair. And I think Guns N' Roses would probably be the same. Really great. You know, Slash playing was fucking fantastic, but you're never going to get quite that same dangerous energy from them that you would have done when they were playing, you know, late 80s. Yeah, and the crowd makes a big part of that as well. I mean, yeah. in the 80s, you would have got probably a pretty tough crowd because it would have attracted the hard nuts, you know, the right. the biker gangs and, and the leather jacket crowd who, were, you know, in those days were, were a tough bunch, whereas yeah. nowadays, you know, they're all crumbly. <laughs> Did you ever get to see them live? No, I've, I've not. And I, I don't think if, if someone offered me a ticket today, I'd be like, well, okay, it wouldn't be something I'd jump at because, because of the energy point you mentioned. So influences, they must have been an influence on your... I like loud guitars taste. Um, yeah, to, simply um, Paradise City being that victorious song blasting out of <laughs> my computer. I tracked it down, obviously, and then got into it. So how old were you when you got the record? I, I never bought it. Okay. Never bought it. So kind of listened to it, loved it. But you hear it so often, I never felt like it needed to be in my record collection. I've only got two, I guess, metal albums one was metallica um mm -hmm. and justice for all i got that because my buddies at school were playing guitar and they wanted to play faster and faster and faster so i bought that to try and learn <laughs> turns out you can't just play the guitar <laughs> just by listening to a metallica cd um and there's another one extreme who uh, uh it's a wonderful album but we won't go there but yeah no i i kind of uh in the 90s late 90s it just wasn't that cool you've got your green days floating around and you know nirvana and rage against the machine were still floating around so 
for, for me, it wasn't really something that I listened to, but I but I definitely enjoyed it. Right. What about you? Did you get influenced? So Guns N' Roses are a tricky one for me in terms of my early days when they were first releasing albums. So I had friends at school who are aged, I guess, 11, 12, particularly a friend called Simon, uh, Simon Benham. If he ever listens to this, hi. He was really into User Illusion 2, absolutely mm-hmm. obsessed with it, obsessed with the sound. And you know what it's like when you're at school at that sort of age, and if the cool crowd like a certain sound, if you like something different, then you're an outcast, basically. Yeah. And so I sort of pretended to go along with the crowd and be like, oh, yeah, you know, Guns N' Roses, they're great, blah, blah, blah. But at that point, I was still in the, you know, listening to poppy stuff and the stuff that my parents listened to. Sure. And so it was only really in my mid-teens that I kind of came back around to this stuff and got hold of, a, I think, a tape copy. Someone lent me a tape copy or a, a copy of a copy or whatever of Appetite for Destruction. And I was like... Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, I get this now. Yeah. In the same way that really for Prodigy, I had the same experience of, you know, a mate introducing them to me when I was too young and my taste hadn't developed properly. Yeah, And so it was, yeah, coming back around and listening to them at that point, at the point where actually it was less cool to be listening to them, but they were part of a diet of that and like you say, Green Day and, you know, all of that stuff that was starting to come out, Foo Fighters, the yeah. the heavier side of, of British rock indie that was coming out as well. So Oasis and Blur to an extent, you know, it's all in that mix of, oh, I like guitars. I really like guitars yeah. and learning to play guitar. I was never a good solo guitarist. I was much more of a rhythm guitarist, but you get those classic solos that your teacher is trying to get you to play and Guns N' Roses obviously you know they were part of that mix and so that's really where their influence comes in of just and you say you don't really listen to this album but this is an album I'll go and listen to from time to time just when I'm in the mood just that opening wail of welcome to the jungle makes me smile every time I listen to it yeah and it it does you know you're in safe hands when when this album's put on absolutely and I'm sure we'll come back to things like use your illusion and use your illusion 2 we'll have guests who want to talk about those I suspect well maybe given that we've taken a massive detour into the world of of rock and metal from our normal hunting grounds of indian electronica then yeah maybe some more people are going to come out of the woodwork yeah i feel like we've missed some some heavier guitar music that we like but we'll come back to that we we should leave it there because this has already gone on quite long and i know it's a hundredth episode but we should probably try not to bore people too much yeah also there's a cat that's just appeared by my microphone so you're now going to hear you're (laughs) going to hear a background harmonics from the cat who is um who is looking for snacks. So um, this is probably a good time to to end the 100th and say very well done. And uh, here's to the next one. Thank you all for joining us and keeping us going. Thanks everyone who's listened. Here's to another 100. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Cheers, buddy. See you later. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong. 